The United Nations COP28 climate conference is underway in Dubai. World leaders are hashing out how to respond to rapid changes in the world's climate. The negotiations themselves can be stuffy, bureaucratic affairs. Debates over punctuation or whether to use the word will versus shall in a lengthy policy document. But on Friday, Romanian youth climate activist Mara Gilan took the stage with a decidedly not bureaucratic message for the world's leaders before her. You usually tell us that we give you hope, but we're not here to give you hope nor are we here to pay the consequences of failed leadership. We're here to make you realize our world as we know is in your hand. And that you, your excellences, have the power to build or to destroy. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. A 2021 global survey of people between the ages of 16 and 25 found that almost 60% of them reported being very or extremely worried about climate change. In a separate poll of 13 to 29-year-olds conducted by PBS NewsHour and The Generation Lab, 34% of young people said climate change would impact their decision about whether to one day have kids of their own. So there they are, two of the ways to think about the intergenerational impact of climate change. How do you talk about it with the young people in your lives now? And what can give hope and confidence to climate-conscious people considering having children in the future? Those are our areas of focus today. And we're going to start with Elizabeth Rush. She's an environmental writer. Her most recent book is The Quickening, Creation and Community at the Ends of the Earth. She's also previously author of Rising, Dispatches from the New American Shore, which was the Pulitzer Prize finalist in general nonfiction. Elizabeth also teaches creative nonfiction at Brown University. Elizabeth Rush, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me, Magna. So... Let's go back a ways. I don't know how many years you want to go back, but when was it that you first thought about you know, maybe starting a family of your own? I would say it was probably about a decade ago. So I'm 39 now. And right around the time when I was 30, I started to feel like, okay, I finally have a somewhat stable income. I have a loving partner. Um the pieces felt sort of in place for me to potentially have a family. And, and yet, you know, I, I was also an M an environmentalist. And so even then it was sort of a complicated question. Like, what does it mean to want to have a child right now as, as the climate crisis accelerates? How did you answer that question? I mean, that's, it's, first of all, it's very profound. What does it mean to want to have a child? Uh, even uh, outside of a climate crisis. I can understand how it was made even more complex uh, uh, for you. But how did you answer that question for yourself? Well, I put it off for a while. (laughs) And I think I felt a lot of um, anxiety, guilt, shame. Sometimes I felt sort of ashamed to even admit that this was something that I wanted. Um, Because I knew that the child I would bring into the world would in some ways, make that world less livable by contributing to our climate crisis, by consuming sort of different 
fossil fuels just because of the society we live in. And I also worried about the impact that future sort of climate instability might have on that child. So I definitely put it off for a while. And quite frankly, then I found myself um, invited to participate in a National Science Foundation mission to Thwaites Glacier in Antarctica, which is mm. like ground zero for future sea level rise. And to go on that mission, I had to kind of postpone pregnancy for another year. So I carried this desire with me definitely towards this glacier that was falling apart. Can you? Can I just pause you there for one second, Elizabeth? Just tell us quickly for a minute about that glacier because um, it is very, very, very important. And I'm not sure that many people have heard of it. Sure. Um, the Waits Glacier is commonly called the Doomsday Glacier. So maybe folks know it by that name. Um, the reason it has this moniker is because it's the size of Florida and it contains enough ice to raise global sea levels two feet. People also think of it as kind of the cork to the West Antarctic ice shelf. And if we lose all of the ice um, in West Antarctica, we'll see global sea level rise rates of 10 feet or more. And the question is really, you know, how much ice are we going to lose and how fast? But at the time, um, no one had ever been to the calving edge of the Waits Glacier. So our mission was the first to go there. And so we got to carry back some really important data, which was fascinating to be a part of. Mm. Mm. But then also fascinating scientifically and environmentally for you. But you said you were carrying this uh, anxiety and guilt about what could be your own personal choices. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, it felt, how would I put it? It felt sort of dangerous to link these desires. I was like, okay, I, I want to have a baby and I want to see this glacier that's falling apart up close. And I kind of thought I would get to Thwaites and somehow seeing, like reckoning with the human impact that we're having on ice in Antarctica, I thought that I would come home with some of that desire to have a child dampened. And it didn't really go away. Uh -huh. And that surprised me. Um, well, so I, there was a kind of reckoning I, that I didn't expect. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I want to hear about that reckoning in a second. But um, first of all, I appreciate how candid you're being about your own <laughs> personal life choices. It's never an easy thing to do uh, in public. Uh, but second of all, it is, it's is—it's like really striking me to my core, Elizabeth, that you, you use the word words guilt and even shame in mm. thinking about would you want to become a mother. And those are so heavy emotions, right, to, right. to put on one person when – or for a person to put on themselves, let me put it that way – when the like climate change, as you know better than anyone, is this massive global phenomenon. Now, you know, I was just thinking, I'm not sure how that many, how many people, um, let's say outside uh, Western countries, which are sort of high carbon producers, if they mm. ever think about, should I have another child? Um, but also, I mean, you're very scientifically minded, so you know, or you knew at that time that your one child really was not going to make anything beyond a fractional difference, right, in what's driving climate change. So how did this turn into something that went from a global problem mm. to shame that you put on yourself? I mean, I think anyone who's really paying attention in the environmental conversation 
probably thinks in a very specific way about carbon consumption, right? Like we've all seen those bar graphs, you know, how much CO2 will I keep in the ground if I take public transportation instead of driving my car? Um, What impact will going meatless for a year have? Uh, And so I think we've been taught to think in a very specific way about what individual actions um, can reduce the amount of CO2 that's being pumped into the atmosphere. And, you know, even though I know as an, as someone who like studies climate change, even though I know a single person's choices aren't, you know, making the future unlivable, it's actually a kind of logic and a kind of rhetoric that seeped so far into me that, I was certainly thinking about, you know, what does it mean to put a child onto this planet? And in those same bar graphs, you often see there's one line that rises high, high, high above the rest. And that's having a child. It's like, oh, well, you know, forget about getting a Prius. Just don't have a baby and and your carbon impact will be lessened. I think I always felt some kind of skepticism, like there was a categorical error there. Yeah. But that didn't mean that I didn't feel guilty for wanting to have a have a child. Right, because, you know, the different parts of the mind don't often cooperate with each other. Right. Um, so, so we have a lot of listeners who after we do or before after we do climate conversations, they call in or email and say, yeah, I'm one of those people. I don't think I'm I don't think it's a smart thing to bring a, a child into the world now because of climate. But you said that there's a rhetoric that seeped so deeply. Where mm-hmm. did that rhetoric start? Elizabeth. So um, I found out from reading a really impactful piece of writing called Is It Still Okay to Have a Child by me and Chris. I found out when I was a couple months pregnant with my child that British Petroleum actually spent hundreds of millions of dollars in 2005 to popularize the idea of the carbon footprint. And they actually created Um, carbon footprint calculators. And they did this like nationwide advertising campaign. And it was so cloyingly simple. It's like, what's a carbon footprint? Everybody has one. Uh, Click on this link to figure out what yours is. And so um, I found out that fossil fuel companies were really responsible for uh, shifting blame away from themselves and onto the individual for uh, CO2 emissions. You must consider, or I consider this, one of the most spectac- spectacularly successful acts of marketing I have ever heard of. Because if a campaign like that launched a sort of shift, uh, you know, attention from the, the biggest you know, carbon emitters to an individual person, and and the person ends up um, understanding or, or absorbing that message so profoundly that it overwhelms the human being's fundamental desire to propagate the species. I mean, there can't be a bigger win than that for a corporation. I mean, I'm nodding along and getting goosebumps. Exactly. I, I remember I remember finding this out, and it was literally the first time in almost a decade that I just put that guilt down. I was like, okay, um, 
fossil fuel companies should not play a role in my reproductive decision making. Mm. And it also made me incredibly angry because I hear my students share these same concerns all the time. It's like some part of me just wanted to say, get out of my womb. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're not invited. You're not invited to that decision. Yeah. Well, Elizabeth, uh, hang on for a second because we have to take a quick break. And as you let slip, you you are a mother now. So now you've also got the challenge of thinking about how to talk to your your child and soon-to-be kids about climate change because, of course, the problem has not gone away. So we have a lot more to talk about. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for On Point comes from BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com slash OnPoint today to get 10% off your first month. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And today we're talking about not only how to talk to your children or the kids in your life about climate change, but also about how climate change has made many people anxious about their own desire to have those kids. I'm joined today by Elizabeth Rush. She's the author of The Quickening, Creation and Community at the Ends of the Earth, and she teaches writing at Brown University. And Elizabeth, I wanted to um, give you a chance to finish your thought about um, what you see or how you respond when students in your in your Brown University classes say, well, I, I don't want to have a child because of, um, you know, the climate chaos all around me. Gosh, you know, that's something I hear really frequently. And there's some part of me that thinks part of what's happening in the subtext of of those comments is something along the lines of like, I've watched my parents recycle. I've watched my parents, you know, put in heat pumps. I've watched the climate conversation unfold and nothing that we do at this kind of individual level seems to be making a dent in it. So what if I make the largest sacrifice I can humanly huh. imagine? Might that be enough? And, um, you know, I feel a tremendous sadness and responsibility towards them because I think that that way of thinking again has been kind of foisted upon them by uh fossil fuel companies and so you know we talk in my classes often about like what can you achieve by working collectively with other people and mm -hmm. we think about that even as writers like we think of writers as working alone but actually all writing is done in community and i think all change will be done in community as well so i try to find the inflection point the crossover between between those two ideas mm. well this is the perfect opportunity to move to the next part of what we wanted to look at today and that is how to talk with 
children in your life, whether they're your own or relatives or in a classroom, who are already here, right? And uh, mm-hmm. and who definitely have questions uh, about all the change and the crisis that they're hearing about and in many senses living through right now. Well, Lisa Van Susteren is a psychiatrist specializing in the psychological impacts of climate change. And she told PBS's NewsHour about all the different ways climate anxiety is being seen even in her youngest patients. Kids have told me that they don't want to pursue a secondary education. What's the point? Um, Kids have said, of course, that they don't want to have children because they uh, don't want to bring a child into the chaos. And then there are other kids who just become anxious by themselves and might take all sorts of uh, responses, maybe, you know, eating disorders, some people, um, or just a general feeling of apathy. That was psychiatrist Lisa Van Susteren on the PBS NewsHour. Well, joining us now is Harriet Sugarman. She's executive director of Climate Mama and also author of How to Talk to Your Kids About Climate Change, Turning Angst into Action. Harriet, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Magna. Okay, so you've been listening along as Elizabeth has shared her story. I First of all, just wanted to ask you sort of what were your, some of your responses or thoughts uh, in what we thought Elizabeth said. Oh, my goodness. I had so many. So (laughs) I loved your conversation. But, you know, I think also that choice to have a child is a a very personal one. And we don't know, too, is that child going to be the child that changes the world in a very positive way? And this idea that um, one person you know, can't affect change. We see all the time movements started by one person and then that builds. And in the in the climate youth movement with Greta Thunberg, and now there's so many young people that have joined in all over the world. And so that hoisted upon us by BP, this idea of the carbon footprint and is similar to the Keep America Beautiful campaign that bottling companies started when all of a sudden who is going to pay for uh, drinks in plastic instead of cans that had to be recycled. They made us think it was our job to do that. So we have mm. to take back that ownership. Um, I swear I'm so, going to do a show in the future, in the hopefully the near future, about this BP story. It just blows my mind. Um, but, you know, I, I also want to acknowledge for a second um, that when we hear from listeners who don't want or decide they don't want to have children. It's for a variety of different reasons, right? It's not exclusively because of climate change, but sometimes climate change factors into that. I'm actually much more interested in the people who say specifically because of climate change, I I do not want to have children. So that that was sort of the context that um, that part of the conversation came in. Now, though, like, let's look let's look to the future. Elizabeth, how old is your your old your oldest child, if I can put it that way? Yes. Um, I have a son. He's three and a half years old and I am pregnant with my okay. second. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and so I imagine that um, your son has a lot of questions because children do. Does he does he ask you about things that he's noticing around the world um, or ask you? I mean, I know he's three and a half, but ask you about things maybe. I don't know if he goes to daycare, but or heard somewhere about how the mm. world is changing. You know, I'm not sure that he's quite there yet Mm -hmm. developmentally, but something that I think is really fascinating is, you know, as I'm sure you can imagine, we talk about climate change all the time in my house. And 
we've made my my husband and I have made no effort to like shield him from the fact that our climate is changing. And recently he was talking about how warm it was on a on a day in November. And he said something like, you know, that's strange. That's climate change. And I was like, yeah, it is. You're right. And so he he gets it. And I think there's some part of me that um, finds it really meaningful that there's this whole generation of young people for whom climate change is not like a shift from a baseline that they knew when they were younger, but it is instead the world that they are growing up in. Exactly. I've noticed that similarly uh, with my offsprings, as I like to call them on the show. Um, that's a fundamental difference that I don't think a lot of adults consider when talking about climate change to their children. Because, Harriet, let's stick with this younger age group for a moment. I mean, there's a profound difference in talking to little kids about something serious in a tone of catastrophizing, right, versus um, awareness, right? So I think my suspicion is that uh, because of how it's talked about in the media, how adults generally talk about it, you know, because we all remember when it snows, you know, it used to snow in October or whatever uh, in snowy regions of the country, that we tend to catastrophize climate change. That doesn't feel like no one's doing it on purpose, but that doesn't feel like the right tone to take with a young child. No, absolutely not. And that we shouldn't do that. And there's uh, many ways to bring the conversation to the table, just you know, as Elizabeth was saying, it's part of their conversation around the home. So, she, you know, her children are going to hear that, and you know, it, it's exciting actually. This alpha generation, these kids that are born as part of the climate, a climate change in its, you know, very real ways. They're they're just going to live it and are already living it. So there's new. Um, programming on television. There's books. There, it's just it's going to be and is part of our children's lives, and it doesn't have to be and shouldn't be in that scary way. Let's help them really understand and have a love for nature. Let's help them see other young people taking action. Let's see, have them see their parents doing things. Their kids just have, especially very young kids, right? Their world is is their home, their room. So how can you bring that? there in a positive way? How can they help you save energy? What's Can you have meetings about um, what's our climate plan? What's our family going to do? Can we draw a picture and send it to our local uh, mayor? There's so many things that in a very positive way, we can introduce this. Do you mm. take the subway? Uh, why are we taking the subway instead of in a car, public transportation? Yeah. I'm just, I'm nodding along, uh, Harriet, because I keep thinking of uh, what uh, Lise Van Susteren said, or Lisa Van Susteren said in that clip that we played, that, you know, we're young kids, young kids are showing signs of anxiety, mm. even to the level of like eating disorders when thinking about climate change. So maybe it's our moral obligation as adults to, in, when we're engaging with them in the topic, to not catastrophize. Because, I mean, Harriet, do you think that it's possible that even just the way uh, people who are feeling anxiety in their own hearts are, uh, because they're communicating that anxiety to their kids, are actually causing some of that anxiety? I, I think that can absolutely be the case. And I love that you played that um, piece by Liz. By um, Lisa, I'm actually working with her on something called the Ecopsychopedia, which would be a, which is an online free resource on the connection between mental health and climate. And so we, ha you know, this idea that 
climate invokes anxiety. It does, um, and and with young people, and and so we need the words and language, and it should, right? It's a it's a catastrophe, you know, for, for older kids, for all of us. What we have done, it's almost awe-inspiring, right? We've changed our natural world in a way as a singular species, and that is incredible and terrifying, and and yet. So to feel angst about these issues, totally normal. And so yeah. we need to bring that back into the conversation too. But for ourselves, have a way to not bring that to our youngest children or talk to our kids about that. Right. Yeah. It seems like, uh, uh, in a sense, almost a frame shift is required. Because you, <laughs> you spoke a little earlier about, well, actually, especially for young children, teaching them a love of nature is is a is a more effective and emotionally appropriate way to um, to approach this. And Elizabeth, this links back to a lot of things that you said earlier, specifically how well we're now in a culture where individuals are, have learned how to feel guilt upon themselves. Uh, we don't want to do that to kids. So when it when we talk about teaching a love of nature, for example, um, that must be something you do with your son. And how do you do that? I mean, it's fascinating. I'm I've been nodding along for this whole conversation as well. And some part of me thinks, you know, I just want to take one second and say, you know, to have climate anxiety manifest as like an eating disorder, to me, that's partly about trying to control what feels out of control. Yes. And um, there's so much that we can do in terms of modeling behavior around what we can participate in and how we um, shape our climate futures together. So something, I feel like two things that I do with my son that feel really important are, I've worked on shifting my language, like who does the acting in my sentences? Um, instead of saying like, say hi to the beech tree in the yard when we get home, I'll be like, hey, Nico, look, the beech tree is saying hi to you. Look, it's shimmering its mm. leaves at you. Um, because I want him to think about, you know, the more than human world as actors in their own right. And that we're in this kind of conversation with nature, that it's not just, uh, humans that can reach out to nature, take care of nature. Nature also takes care of us. And, um, so I do that. And I also, I think, you know, to the point that was made earlier, I do a little bit of climate organizing work and I tell him about it. Um, we also have childcare available at our meetings so that our kids can see us getting together and working with one another for a more just livable future. I think that those kinds of behaviors are really important to display. What does um, sort of giving uh, more uh, – how am I going to put this? I'm gonna, uh and animation to the natural world around mm. your son, right? Um, and I mean that in, in terms of, like, seeing the life in other things. Um, right. What do you think that, what do you hope it might empower him to do in the future as, you know, as he lives for himself and for how he sees the world? Well, I mean... I think of something that a colleague of mine, Bashiba Demuth, said to me once, um around this kind of question of like bemoaning the slow rate of change. Uh, like, are we responding to this crisis fast enough? And she said, we're in an intergenerational relay race. And so 
um, you know, when I think about helping him not just see, but maintain his knowledge of the more than human world is alive. I think kids actually do a lot of this on their own mm. anyways. And then we kind of like beat it out of them over time. Um, when I'm doing that, I'm really hoping that part of what happens is that like his entire worldview shifts to be uh, fundamentally aware that we we don't survive without the survival of um, the planet as a place where flourishing is possible for all different kinds of species. So, um, you know, I think that I'm actually trying to impact like a, a worldview shift yeah. that isn't inherent in Western consciousness right now. Mm. Well, Elizabeth Rush, author of The Quickening, Creation and Community at the Ends of the Earth, that's her most recent book uh, about the world we live in now. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. Well, Harriet... So give me some more examples. We'll we'll talk about older kids and teens uh, uh, after the break. But, like, give me a quick example of a dialogue that you might encourage a parent to have or an, any adult to have with a child in their life. I think that we have to ask, you know, listen to our children. And so what do they know? What are they hearing? And with those young children, again, it's, I, I think we don't have to say, what do you know about climate change? We, we start those conversations as Elizabeth was talking about, talking about the importance of the trees and what grows in our neighborhood and um, watching, you know, whether you live in the middle of a big city or in a, uh, a environment that's more rural and there's a lot of opportunity to enter nature in a, in a more direct way. What's what's around your house? What's growing? Mm. Can, you know, what grows in season? Do we go to a farmer's market? Um, all kinds of conversations that just begin that conversation about uh, the importance of nature and then maybe how it's changing. You know, we used to have these kind of animals here they can't live here anymore, or these birds don't come here. or So you can introduce that part about that humans are creating change around us, and what can we do to help slow that down. Yeah, or look at the animals that are moving in that weren't in our environment exactly. before. Exactly. Why might they be here now? Exactly. Right. Well, mm-hmm. Harriet, we just have to take a really quick break here, and when we come back, we're going to talk about um, kids in older age groups, maybe late, late elementary, middle school, and definitely high schoolers. And our exploration is today, how do we, we as adults talk about climate change with the children in our lives, wherever they might be. So we'll have a lot more about that in a moment. This is On Point. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast.
You're back with On Point. I'm Magna Chakrabarty, and Harriet Sugarman is with us today. She's author of How to Talk to Your Kids About Climate Change, Turning Angst into Action. Um, And Harriet, before we move on to some specific ideas regarding older children, I want to ask you about something that I think applies to kids of any age, and that's media consumption. Because, um, you know, parents or or family members, teachers, etc., can try to successfully regulate how they're talking with their kids about climate change. But that same self-regulation just doesn't exist in media because most of it's designed for adults anyway, right? I'm thinking of uh, commercial radio, commercial television, even some of the shows that we've done here, although we have the luxury of more time to provide the kind of context you were talking about. But, you know, you know commercial broadcasting is designed to Keep your attention for a short period of time so that you'll watch the ads afterwards, right? And how do people's attention get captured? Through making them feel very emotional. So it's always going to be um, kind of an extreme short story about the latest evidence of climate change. That's not – that's like the opposite of what you're saying we should be – or how we should be um, dis- having these discussions with kids. So what should p- family members or adults do about media consumption? Right. That's a really hard thing to regulate, as you said, Magna. And, you know, each family, I think, has their own rules about how they deal with that, particularly with younger kids. But when and if your child, you know, says they're afraid about the climate crisis, maybe ask them what they heard. Mm. Uh, What were they listening to? What were they watching? And then dig dig deeper into it. Because as you said, all those sound bites and a lot of the way that we uh, consume media, media now is in such short little bites, and it's it's meant to shock you, it's meant to scare you, uh, and it is scary. And we have to tell the truth. That's that's the you know a critical component, whether a child is three and a half or uh, twenty three and a half. But that how we convey that message and the reality of what we're talking about will really depend on their age. And yeah. so if we can pull it back. Um, and see what it was that upset them or concerned them and have a more detailed conversation. I think that's really important. Yeah, you know, I feel like I just extremely dated myself because I was focusing on broadcast media, when, of course, what we should be talking about is social media, right, which is right. even even shorter, even more titillating, if I can put it that way. But I would guess the same rules apply, right? If someone, if a child says, you know, um, are we all going to die because the next heat wave is going to hit 60% of the United States and be 100 degrees every day for five months? I saw that on TikTok, right? So right. finding out where they where they heard this or saw this information first still applies. Absolutely. And, and, you know, also reassuring them, at least for the moment, and again, that's, you know, coming from where we, you know, this North American um, perspective, there are, you know, we, there are things that we can do to build resiliency, um, both physical resiliency for our kids' schools, for um, our homes, and our own emotional and mental resiliency. And then also pointing out that life isn't fair, too, right? Mm. It isn't the same for somebody, a young child that is growing up, you know, on the front lines of climate change in the global south. And so those disparities are important lessons as it relates to the unfolding climate crisis as well. Yeah. Well, so let's um, shift our focus here to classrooms for a moment because, of course, outside of a a family, however it's made up, teachers are one of the largest adult influences on children of any age. And more and more of those teachers are talking about climate change in classes like science, but also beyond. 
Well, Cotty Christie Blick is currently a climate change educational consultant. Before that, she was in the classroom as a teacher for 30 years. She began teaching climate change to her fourth grade students back in 2008. And Cotty says she felt it was her responsibility to translate frightening topics into terms kids could connect with. Whether we're talking about stranger danger or, well, now people entering the school with guns or earthquakes or hurricanes or, you know, there's a lot of scary adult stuff going on in the world. Teachers can really play an important part because they are good at translating the adult world for kids. For fourth graders, that could mean playing with water. To teach about melting ice caps, Christy Blick brought in a plastic bin containing a miniature 3D world. It was complete with mountain ranges and rivers and towns with tiny houses dotting a little coastline. And then she had her students place a block of ice high up in those mountains. And it was just dripping, 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 dripping. And the rivers were filling up and they were flowing down to the ocean level and then the ocean starts to rise and before they know it, the a town is completely flooded and it it becomes a very noisy classroom that <laughs> they are laughing because it's it's water play and they're safe seeing this it's all in miniature um and at the same time they're laughing i remember hearing a girl say over and over again this isn't right this shouldn't be happening that was my house i had the perfect house with a beautiful view this isn't right and she said it over and over again and it really stuck in my mind and it kind of came up and above all the cacophony of the rest of the children in there so when it's miniaturized you can get the lesson across in a way that isn't too scary so that's Cody Christie Blick sharing one example of how to have uh, age-appropriate and productive lessons in the classroom about climate change. So Harriet, talk to me uh, about this. If I recall correctly, do you correctly do you have a direct experience doing this in classrooms? Uh, well, I actually I'm a professor in a college, and I, okay. I teach climate change. But I absolutely I work with teachers. What an awesome and wonderful teacher Cody is. Uh, I am actually working um, on a bill for New York State right now that w- that it was just released and in the next legislative session will look to try to have P through 12 cross-curricular climate education. And that's something that exists only in the state of New Jersey currently. Um, many states, uh, and it wasn't legislatively required that teachers worked uh, in conjunction um with the uh, first lady of the state to make that happen. And other states around the United States teach climate in the science realm. But as you said, you know, we can learn so much through art, through drama, through many different subjects. And having an amazing teacher like Cody, you know, we don't have that consistently everywhere. Or the teacher might not be prepared or feel trained to teach that. We did a, a survey in New York State a few years ago with a uh, all of or New York City with all of New York City teachers, and the result was that about fifty-three uh, percent were teaching climate, but at most two hours a year, mm. and and that's in New York City. And because they're not trained, they aren't prepared, or they don't have access to lesson plans, 
And then there was a study done in 21 by Yale Climate Communications, and 78% of people cross uh, political lines said they wanted their kids to learn about climate change in schools. And so that's really powerful that, it, you know, that because we have this partisan divide around talking about climate, um, but that are the parents, that people want their children to learn about climate. And in New Jersey now that this has been two years, uh, we're in the second year of teaching it, there was a study that just came out that looked at how are parents now talking to their kids about climate. And because their kids are learning about it, they're having those conversations. So this a point that you raise about teaching it in schools, Magna, is really critical. And we aren't yet doing that um, in, in many places at all. And it's something that as parents, as, as educators, as, as uncles and aunts, we can advocate for because our kids, as we talked about, they're growing up living the climate emergency and they should be empowered, not scared, right? They should learn about it in school. They should learn you know, every career that any child chooses should be, will have a climate impact. Right. And it seems to me that uh, in classrooms there um, is the opportunity to go deeper into, you know, all the context things that we talked about, into the process of climate change, into the, the causes that help feel kids uh, make ha- could help make kids feel like, okay, there's something constructive that perhaps we can do here because I understand why it's happening now. But, you know, when we think about middle schoolers, let's say, and, and, and high schoolers, Harriet, this is a time of tremendous change for the young people themselves, right, internally, developmentally, psychologically. And um, that makes the world that much more confusing and difficult to deal with. Uh, and also, now we're talking about an age of if kids who care about this issue, they may want to do something about it. So what are your recommendations of, let's go back to families for a second, of how to have those conversations with older children and teens? Yeah, uh, exactly. And I think, you know, not every child is going to be want to be that child that's standing in front of a microphone, you know, encouraging action around climate. Uh, there are many different ways. And, you know, we talked about briefly, you know, maybe they're a musician. Maybe they want to have a, produce a play at their school that talks, you know, about the climate crisis in some way, shape, or form. Maybe they want to um, help their sports teams become more sustainable, you know, not have plastic water bottles. Maybe they want to help the school save energy. And, you know, there are so many ways, shapes, and forms that that can uh, manifest itself. And so I, I think, again, really important is to ask your child, what do they know? Or say you were listening to Meghna on NPR today, and she was talking about this, and you were, are just beginning to learn about uh, the realities of the climate crisis. It was concerning. It was hopeful. It was whatever it was. And, and bring out those emotions with or, or those discussions with your child and let them lead. Because those older kids, as you said, you know, they're hearing about the climate crisis in media from their friends. And they, what they may be hearing uh, may not be, uh, you know, really what's happening. And, and you also don't have to pretend to be an expert. It's like mm. so many things, right? As parents, we're, we're required to, to do all of these, help our children learn all these things. But again... Go to those climate scientists that are the experts. Get trusted sources because that's critically yeah. important too. Yeah. 
For all the young people trapped in the backseat of your parents' car right now, being forced <laughs> to listen to On Point, or if you're in the house and your parents won't let you turn off the radio slash podcast, first of all, hello. And I'm very, very, very glad you're <laughs> listening to us. And you see, you heard Harriet Sugarman, an expert there, tell you when, you're, when you want to talk about climate change with your parents, tell them, don't make me panic. Help me understand. Right. So, and, and also, you can always just jump on Facebook if you want with your parents' approval and send us your message or thoughts. Now, um, Harriet, in the last couple of minutes here, I want to turn back to something that Elizabeth helped us um, at the, with at the beginning of the show. And that is when she said, it's a climate crisis— Crisis is a non-factual word, though. It's a very subjective word. Climate change is happening faster now human because it's human-caused than it ever has in the history of the, of the planet. That's the factual statement. But when we as, we as adults are feeling it as a crisis, as an emergency, because we knew what existed before. But as Elizabeth said, kids now are being born into this. So in, I guess what I'm trying to get at is, is one way to... Um, help kids with the reality of the climate change they're living with is not to necessarily talk about it in terms of, oh, my gosh, the world will never be the same, but rather change is happening faster than ever in our environment, around the world, in just basically everything in life. So finding different ways, perhaps even non-climate related, to teach kids about resilience or build a resilience in them in the face of change of any kind. Absolutely. That we, we, we need to do that because even though it's an emergency in terms of the fastest changes that the planet has ever experienced and science shows us, for the rest of our children's lives, they will be living climate change. And, and at different times, it, it likely will be an emergent, uh, emergency. But they need to build their emotional resiliency. They need to be excited about what is their place in helping to all, for all of us to live through and with the climate crisis they should see themselves as as being alive at this moment in the history of humans where actually what we do matters and mm. what each one of us we have we have a role to play so we want to empower our children and not shut them down we want them to see that you know yes this is here, but also for children, right? I, I, you know, my kids, when they were young, you know, three years seemed like all of their lives or, yeah. or a year or six months. And, and, and so I talk to parents and they say to their, you know, they have young kids and they see their parents acting on the climate crisis. And then they get so mad at them that they didn't solve it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Because so, and, and we, we won't solve the climate crisis. We have to learn how to live with it. And, and as you said, build our resiliency internally and externally. Well, cause you know, every time I think about this, these rising rates of, uh, poor mental health, the anxiety, even the phrase climate anxiety is a very common one now, or the eating disorders that we heard about earlier. I mean, that's just wrong. Something that cannot be changed overnight, that's a global problem, should not be, um, you know, manifest in young people as that kind of hurt and harm. So, you know, providing the basis for a kind of worldview that acknowledges problems, but say it says, you know, it won't be solved overnight, and here's how you can be strong. It just feels so fundamental to me. And that can apply at, at, at any age. Right, Harriet? Absolutely. And, and it may be that, you know, your uh, 
children that already have children are just coming into this knowledge or understanding because they had kids. And so that's the time to start. Or you just had a child and, you know, oh my gosh, all of a sudden that's opened up the realities of the climate crisis. That child, you know, you can talk to them from the beginning. There's lots of places to go for resources. I work with an organization called the Climate Mental Health Network and there's a resource page for parents. There's all, you know, many places that you don't have to be alone. And building community, um, Elizabeth talked about the importance of community. You know, there are groups that come together as parents of very young kids. In New York City, we have a group called Climate uh, Families, and it's zero to eight, and they're bringing kids together and for playdates, and it's you know, their parents happen to be working on climate. Mm. So many, many ways to help build that resiliency that our children will need for the rest of their lives as they live the uh, climate change. Well, Harriet Sugarman is executive director of Climate Mama. It's the group she just mentioned. And author of How to Talk to Your Kids About Climate Change, Turning Angst into Action. Harriet, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Magna, for having me. I'm Magna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.